Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Have you tried peanut with your baby yet? So intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters are choking hazard for babies. So we can't do that, but we do need to get peanut protein into your baby early and often to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. So my favorite way to do peanut for baby lead weaning is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. Now, these are not those little starchy puffs that earlier eaters can't pick up, the ones you see at the grocery store in the container that oftentimes contain added sugar, sodium, and refined grains. No, the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs have no added sugar. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger, which is the perfect length for baby lead weaning. So I have students and parents always asking about like different puffs. I saw one today that a mom asked me about. It had three different allergens in it, which makes no sense because you can't observe for a reaction if your baby is trying three new allergenic foods at once. How do you know which of the ingredients is causing the reaction? The only potential allergenic ingredient in the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs is peanut. You can get 15% off of Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs if you use my affiliate discount code BABYLED. So head to puffworks.com and enter that code BABYLED, L-E-D, at checkout. And good luck to you guys trying peanut. You should do the test at least once a year. And I think you should think also before the baby is born to make sure that the caring mother is also, you know, coping with her HP levels because it also sets the foundation for the child. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. When you go to your baby's pediatrician, do they ever do a finger stick or a heel stick test to check your baby's hemoglobin level? So hemoglobin is the oxygen carrying part of your red blood cells and low hemoglobin levels can be a first glimpse into what may actually be iron deficiency anemia. Now, we talk a lot about iron on the podcast because it's important to be including iron-rich foods in your baby's weaning diet. And iron deficiency anemia, I don't want to freak you guys out. I know you're concerned about it, but it is a major global health problem with, according to 2019 statistics, it's thought that about 40% of the world's children aged six months to five years have iron deficiency anemia. And that's very bad news because of the very important role that iron plays on cognitive development. So we want your baby to have adequate iron stores so that their brain and everything else in their body is developing appropriately. So in the United States, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends screening for iron deficiency anemia by nine to 12 months of age. But every time we pull our audience on this topic, I am blown away by how few pediatricians are doing hemoglobin checks in the office. It's a very safe, low-cost, effective way to screen for iron deficiency anemia, not to mention that it helps give parents peace of mind, right? When you see that hemoglobin level in a normal range, you're like, heck yeah, this variety of foods that I'm helping my baby learn how to eat, it's paying off, it's helping them establish adequate iron stores. So my guest today is Stefan Aulensberg. He has a PhD in life science, and he's the director of marketing and communications for a company called HemaQ. He pronounces it HemaQ. I think in the United States, we pronounce it HemaQ. It's neither here nor there. They make a diagnostic point-of-care testing device. And some of these you've probably seen in your own pediatrician's office. I know I first became 
interested, borderline obsessed with the HEMA-Q. When my pediatrician did a heel stick test in office at my oldest daughter's nine month well check, I remember seeing hemoglobin testing devices in lots of different WIC offices that I had worked in earlier in my dietitian career because they do hemoglobin screening in the WIC program. But after doing baby led weaning with my next six kids, I was always very interested in whether or not like, are my babies getting enough iron from the foods? And the hemoglobin heel stick was one of the things that I always looked forward to at our pediatrician appointment. So I've been dying to chat with a representative from HemaQ. I tracked them down at the National WIC Association meeting and like cornered the American sales gal. And I was like, please, nobody will email me back. But I really, really, really want to talk with a scientist from your company. So I wanted to learn more about hemoglobin checks and the technology. Stefan, in this interview, talks about how to get the best sampling technique if your doctor is doing hemoglobin testing via heel stick or finger stick in their office. And then so you guys know, like, what do you do if your doctor isn't screening for iron deficiency anemia? Because that is important too. So if you are at all interested in iron levels in your baby, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Stefan Allensberg from HemaQ. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to this. I am very excited to talk about iron and infants, but before we get started, could you tell us about your professional background and in particular, the work that you do? I uh, have a PhD in biochemistry, which ties nicely to the topic that we will talk a little bit more about. And uh, I work at the company since 2015. Uh, the company's name is HemoQ. And we are working and developing um, medical devices with the aim to measure HP indirectly, sort of iron supplements and how you go about that. Okay, I have a question. I always called the company HemaQ, but you pronounce it HemaQ. Yeah, we it... pronounce it HemaQ. It's a, it's a mix between hemo, hemoglobin, and the, the cuvette, which is a key to the test that we provide. So it's a mix between hemoglobin and the cuvette that we perform the test. I never knew that. I got the hemo part, but the cuvette, I didn't know. So in the United States, the American Academy of Pediatrics here recommends that pediatricians screen for anemia between nine and 12 months. So I became familiarized with the HemaQ products because my own pediatrician, I have seven children. When we go to the doctor's office, they have an in-office device. They do a heel stick for checking the hemoglobin levels. So you mentioned that you work you know, with the HB hemoglobin. Can you explain uh, what that is, what it does in the body, and then a little bit about how the HemaQ works? The hemoglobin is a part of the red blood cell. And the red blood cells are produced in the bone marrow. The work the red blood cells perform in the body is to carry oxygen to all the vital parts. And the oxygen carrying part of uh, the red blood cells is called hemoglobin. So this is a cell that transports oxygen and the oxygen carrying molecule within the red blood cells is the hemoglobin molecule. That's a perfect explanation. And I think it's a bridge for parents. When we're measuring the hemoglobin, it's not an, a direct measurement of iron, but it's a marker for iron status. Is that correct? And how, how does the hemoglobin tell you what's going on with the baby's iron status? When you test your hemoglobin, you test for a condition that we call anemia. And anemia is a condition that develops when your blood produces a lower than normal amount of healthy red blood cells. That condition is called anemia. And you can test anemia by measuring the HB level. 
by taking a simple, like you said, heel stick or finger prick or so on. So then you measure the level of normal amount of healthy red blood cells. The cause why they are not you know, healthy can be many different things. One is iron deficiency, which is then called iron deficiency anemia. But there could be many, many different causes that triggers anemia. Now, for us in the United States, I think parents are fearful or worried about iron and they hear these messages like, oh my gosh, at six months, your baby needs to start eating iron foods and they're not going to get enough iron if they don't. And, you know, we teach parents, listen, your baby has some iron stores that they got from the tail end of pregnancy from mom. They're getting iron from breast milk and or formula. They're also learning how to eat iron foods. But I do know that iron deficiency is the most common micronutrient deficiency in children around the world. And you mentioned when we were chatting before, you know, as we were trying to set up this interview, that you've also worked in global iron work. So I was just curious, how does screening for iron deficiency anemia work in other countries, in developing countries or other countries where you've worked compared to the United States? You're absolutely, you know, you're spot on that it's important that you have, that you measure and test for anemia. And, and the prevalence of anemia is pretty high, actually, about yeah, in young kids. It's about 20% of, of uh, kids that have anemia. And about 25% are, you know, likely to have it somewhere during life, which we look in developing countries. But in developing countries like India, where I worked a lot, there the numbers are, you know, much, much higher. We talk about 40 to 85% that have anemia. And it's interesting that you talk about the development of children because actually we try to think about the, what we call the thousand-day concept. And it actually starts before the child is born because the mother who carries the, the baby increased the blood volume just because of the pregnancy. And if the red blood cell development doesn't follow this one, the mother is likely to become anemic, which is then carried over to the baby. And since anemia or oxygen transportation, if we put it like that, is vital for the development of all the functions in a baby, for instance, uh, when they're born, the cognitive brain, the brain development, et cetera, et cetera, if these things if you are anemic and born with anemia and it's not tested and treated for in due time, it is very likely that it will have an impact on your cognitive development. And if you consider then that 50% in the population are born with that kind of disease and are left untreated, then it's going to have a socioeconomic impact all the way up until that because it will cause poverty. It's not going to be possible to you know, work or go to school and learn at school and so on and so forth. So it can have a tremendous impact if you're not observant on your anemia. And Stefan, you mentioned the cognitive development. So with anemia, iron deficiency anemia, we see delays in a child's cognitive development. But in what other ways can suboptimal iron levels negatively impact a child's health? So with anemia, you're much more prone to uh, get infectious diseases, for instance. If you live in a part of the world where, for instance, malaria is, uh, you're likely to get the malaria, like in India where I was. Um, and uh, I met a the doctor there that said that there are malaria is not the cause of the death. It's actually the anemia that is developed due to the malaria that causes the death. So I think that, for me at least, was an eye-opener that 
there are differences around the globe and the secondary impact in this case anemia has a vital outcome on people's life and can have a tremendous impact on that and i think if we compare let's say we compare us with with india in this case there are for me there are there are one major differences one is that in us we have healthcare centers that people go to and get tested and healthcare is available if if we generalize it is readily available for people to go to healthcare center there are public health programs like the vic program that also have a part of where people can go and get tested during under public healthcare programs in other parts of the world healthcare is not that easily available so in many parts of the world the healthcare needs to go to rural settings and this is a huge difference that you have big big programs uh, public health programs that are privately funded in many cases where people like asha workers in india go to rural villages and tests women and children this way so healthcare goes to the women and children as the other way around and i think this is a this is to some extent a, a difference between the different um, possibilities to get this uh, testing done and treatment of anemia hey we're going to take a quick break but i'll be right back My phone is bursting at the seams with photos of our kids. And over the years, I've tried all sorts of different ways to store and share them with family members. So for a while, I would just text out pictures to the grandparents. And then we tried a shared photo album. But some people were using Google Photos and others preferred Facebook Messenger for pictures. And the more kids we had, the messier it got. Then I stumbled across the Family Album app. The Family Album app was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with loved ones. It's a totally secure, personal haven for your family's memories. I love that there's no third-party ads, no unwanted eyes, and it's totally free. No more scrolling through endless feeds or searching folders to find the picture of the kid that you need right now. Another cool feature about the Family Album app is you can order eight free photo prints every month to be delivered to your home which if you think about how quickly your baby is changing, it's really nice to have some tangible pictures to hold onto or share to document the last month of your baby's life. If you're looking to level up your photo sharing and organization game with a secure, one-stop, easy-to-use photo organization app, head over to the App Store, search Family Album, download the Family Album app, and start creating a legacy of love one photo at a time. You know, it reminds me, I know you did a lot of work in India. After college, I was a volunteer in the country of Nepal for two and a half years, so just north of India. And I worked in maternal and child health. And we worked in rural health settings, and I worked at the health post. And it was so interesting because they didn't have prenatal vitamins, but they had iron pills. And so they would tear off pieces of newspaper. They would count out 30 pills or however many days in the month. They would wrap it up. And having those iron pills for the pregnant moms was like one of the most important parts of the prenatal experience because, of course, the diet is very high in carbohydrate, very low in iron and protein. It's not a very iron-rich diet, almost no animal foods, a little bit of plant protein and iron from there, but as we know, not as well absorbed by the body. And, and I remember the women just like clutching onto those iron pills for dear life. And a lot of our messaging was like very simplistic about the importance of iron in pregnancy and then obviously promotion of breastfeeding, et cetera, to try to promote, you know, iron that way in the infant. So I appreciate the work that you have done in the global scenario and looking back at the United States, that's where my audience is. When we talk to parents like on social media and we ask about, you know, is your pediatrician screening for anemia 
I'm really surprised how many doctors are not talking about hemoglobin screening or anemia screening for infants. And again, we don't want to stress the parents out, but do you have any statistics? Like what percent of infants are getting screened in their doctor's offices, which, you know, it is a national protocol, yet we find a lot of parents are totally clueless and their doctors never even talk to them about iron. To be honest, I don't have a number how many that are not, that are not tested. The only numbers that we are aware about, those are the ones that publish either by the American Association of Pediatricians or the WHO. And in US, again here, looking at prevalence numbers within that age category, it is about 20%. But it doesn't tell how many people that are, how many kids that are tested. Good point. So we don't know. The guidelines suggest once every year up until the age of, I think it is five. Don't take the, that number for exact. But I mean, that's the guideline that's for, that comes to my mind that they should do this. If they follow the guidelines or not, it's very, very difficult for us to know what to dig out and the numbers of that. In US, I visited a primary care health center. I visited many, but super interesting. I think there's a big difference here between different physicians also at the same healthcare center because the funny thing with this center was there was two physicians and one was on an average doing 10 HP tests per day and the others were doing one. So why is that? That's super interesting to understand, you know, why is there such a big difference between two physicians working in the same primary care center? You should think that, you know, they come across similar diseases or similar patient groups, et cetera, et cetera. But they, at least this specific center and this specific setup, they took the test very differently. You know, to different, uh, one was taking 10 tests a day and the other just one. So why is that? It's difficult to know. I don't know, but I loved when we would go to the doctor. I have seven little kids and I have two sets of multiples. I have a set of quadruplets and a set of twins. So in three years, we had seven kids. Like I was at the pediatrician all the time and I teach infant feeding. We don't do rice cereals. We teach them how to eat iron containing foods. But in the back of your mind, you're always a little nervous. Oh my gosh, what if they're not getting enough iron? I loved when my pediatrician would do the hemoglobin test because when it came back within normal limits, it was a peace of mind for me as the mom. When I left that office, I am doing a good job. They are getting enough iron, even though they're not eating whole pieces of meat yet, we're doing okay. And I wish more doctors would do it to help validate to parents, you're doing the right thing. And then if you're missing the iron, it's not, I know it's not like diagnostic of, a, of iron deficiency anemia if you have a low hemoglobin. We'll, we'll talk about what you do next if the hemoglobin value comes back low. But I wish more doctors would do it because it is that like objective validation to the parents. You are doing a good job. Otherwise, they're just guessing. You, you can't see. I mean, I know there are symptomatic diagnoses for iron deficiency anemia. But like if the hemoglobin's low, you can't see it unless the doctor tells you. I, exactly to your point. And I think the word, the word that I like a lot there is like you say peace of mind because it's peace of mind for the parent. And it's also peace of mind for the kids. Because they know they do a good job and this is the way to sort of behave or live a life. And also, I mean, the physicians should also feel peace of mind because, you know, they are healthy. Because anemia is a really good guidance on general health. It just goes like that. If your HP level is, is okay, generally, you're not fatigued, you're not tired in general. Then there are other conditions. Of course, there could be other conditions. But in general, it's a very good health marker. 
as I understand it from talking to representatives from your company and just in my own personal interest, like I'm the mom and the doctor that like for one of my youngest twins, her hemoglobin came back slightly below optimal levels at her 12 month checkup. I asked them to retake it. I asked them to retake it again. On the third time, pushing the third or fourth drop of blood out, it tested normal. And I remember thinking, okay, and then another time it came back low and it really was low and we had to work on different iron foods. But could you just tell us like general best practices if you're in an office and the doctor has a hemocue and they're testing for hemoglobin, like obviously it would need to be calibrated. I think I remember hearing that you don't do the first drop of blood. It's supposed to be the second one. Like, are there just some best practices for getting the most accurate results from this test in your pediatrician's office? Yes, uh, it is. And we call this the pre-analytical factors. And that is the way you take the capillary sample when you use these devices. So if you have poor sampling technique, then you can have a misreading. But rarely, depending on what kind of device they pick up here, because there are numbers of different uh, point of care uh, HP testing devices there. But but, uh, if you use one of the, you know, then they most often they read accurate, but it's the capillary sampling technique that is uh, vital to get uh, a good reading or a correct reading, I should say. That is your, so you should not be cold and you should massage the finger and you should take the finger prick at the, you know, uh, in, a, in a correct way. And then you should make sure to fill the cuvette in, in this case properly. And it's just a drop of blood, it's 10 microliters. So it's not, you know, it's not a lot of blood. <laughs> it's just a drop of blood. But if you do this sampling technique in the correct way, then you you will most likely get an accurate reading. Sorry, did you say they should not be cold? Yes, I mean, you should have a good blood circulation because if you have... But have you ever been in a doctor's office? Like they blast those places with the air conditioning and the babies are freezing. Yeah. So that's why sometimes you massage the finger a little bit to get a good blood circulation. Because if you have poor circulation, obviously your skin gets pain. You have noticed that probably on your hands. And pale skin color is in some countries actually used to diagnose anemia. So you can make that connection. You should have a good um, circulation. And you can do that by massaging the the finger that you are to prick. How come some pediatricians do finger stick and some do heel stick? Is one better than the other or preferred? Or what's the reasoning there? The general guidelines is here actually to not make heel sticks when they can walk. Because it would hurt after or what? Yeah, exactly. Because it impacts, you know, it can impact. Then you can do it on the fingers. But if they are really, really small, it's more or less impossible to get a good blood supply from these tiny fingers. Then the heel is much more uh, suitable for that uh, for that reason. In general, I think you do heel stick uh, between up to, up to nine months. But after that, in general you do uh, finger stick, but it could, there are variations to this. Okay. But one is not significantly more accurate. I mean, your blood is your blood. No, no, no. They are equally accurate as long as you do have a good sampling technique, but some are afraid of making a proper finger prick. So you don't get enough uh, blood out. Then you will get poor reading because of the sampling technique here again. This is what we call pre-analytical factors. And irrespective of devices or you, you use, this is of essence that you have a good pre-analytical technique. I was so surprised when I started looking into the devices that they're not very expensive. Like when some offices don't have them, you're like, in some cases, this is a $300 device. But then I'm also blown away 
that some parents are telling me, oh, my doctor doesn't have hemoglobin testing in the office. They do a straight up IV blood draw to check for iron levels and hemoglobin. To me, that feels not necessary. I understand that that you need to go have an IV blood draw to confirm the diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia. But for the first round of screening, why do some doctors jump right to a very invasive blood draw on an infant if they could just be doing hemoglobin screening? This is a very interesting topic to discuss if you are in the business where I come from, which is point of care testing, where you would like to get the essential diagnostics as close as possible to the patient. Like you say, why don't you do it in the physician's office? So in some instances, there is a lab in the back door somewhere where they send all the samples. So they prefer to make, like you say, a venous draw and then send them along to get all different parameters at the same in, in one go. The flip side of that is that you have to wait for the result, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't get that immediate feedback when sitting with the physician. And you don't get that peace of mind that you were talking about earlier on when you're in there. But they get a broader panel and can check for many more parameters as compared to just one of these point-of-care devices. But if you're just there for you know, a general health checkup, I don't know exactly what to say, you know. I, we call it essential diagnostics, like your diabetes, your HP testing, for instance, and so on. HbA1c is one of these markers that you probably heard a lot about also. It's not related to this topic at all, which we discussed now, but there are a few here, which is, uh, you know, very much up for point of care testing. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and works with your lifestyle as a parent or caregiver. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on the journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. And getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. And I think this is particularly true for parents. because I know firsthand how you can feel torn between your old baby-free, carefree self and this new, very challenging role of parenting a small person. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, as well as talking through, things that can help you know what you want or why you react the way you do. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month today. And so what do you advise pediatricians if the hemoglobin with the perfect sampling technique comes back low? Obviously, it's unique to each child. There's many different reasons. But then, you know, I as the mom, I'm the most annoying patient. I would always ask them to retest and retest because sometimes it would come back normal then. And I said, you know, if I didn't ask for that, I would have left this office feeling so bad. But on occasion, one of my own children, the hemoglobin was at 11. The doctor doesn't like that. Okay. What do you suggest then following that from a diagnostic standpoint? Do you walk out of the office? You can't say that child doesn't have iron deficiency anemia. W what do we do next? So, I mean, first of all, if it is anemic, you know, I, I wouldn't ask for three or four tests because it's just the nature of the game of all these devices that there is a span and there is a limit and there is a calculation. So they are correct and accurate. But uh, if you do multiple tests for the same at the same person at the same time, it will vary. It will vary. That's just the nature of all these tests. So I wouldn't ask to do 
consecutive tests just to get the, you know, now I'm, I, I have no anemia. So then I'm happy. I wouldn't do that. I would, I would trust the first one. Then you need to think of, you know, what could be the cause of these. Most often you, you, you start out by iron supplement or nutrition food, especially if you are in the U.S. There is also another part of this, which is the general medical exam, where you talk about what could have happened and not happened and try to relate to this. Uh, but if you don't know, then you need to examine further. And then you need to make this venous blood draw and send off to a lab to investigate what type of anemia is this really. Most often in Sweden and US and so on, the medical exam and the discussion with the patient, mother and child, most often guides to very good first line of treatment, I would like to say, being iron deficiency or related things, actually. Globally, how does the US stack up as far as like the screening goes compared to other countries that you work with? You're a global company. You obviously see a lot of different countries in the way they do this. If we're talking about babies six to 12 months of age. I mean, as most of the developed countries, they stack up very, very good. We think, you know, being a provider of these devices, of course, this comes with the responsibility. And I think the responsibility is a multi-stakeholder game here because the testing needs to be, of course, robust and you have all, you get the right reading, but it needs to be affordable, accessible, and available. Logistics comes into play here. And I think in developed countries, logistics and supply and training and ease of use and, and the skills to do the perform the tests is very well you know, established and it works fine. There are those challenges. You see, that, that kind of challenges is elsewhere in the world as compared to the U.S. So I think it's very well. Then it's more like there might be like an educational problem because you can also test when you, when you score anemia, you can see differences in, in socioeconomic groups within one country or in certain regions and so on and so forth. And there, maybe you can find differences within U.S., is there anything else that you think is important for our audience? These are primarily parents and caregivers of babies who are six to 12 months of age. What should they know about iron levels or hemoglobin or screening for iron deficiency anemia in that prior to 12 months of age stage? You should ask for the test if they don't take it on a regular basis. You should do the test at least once a year. And I think also you should think also before the baby is born to make sure that the, the caring mother is also, you know, coping with her HP levels because it also sets the foundation for the child. I would extend that to what's called the thousand days concept up until the age of two years old. I think it's of essence to have the anemia or the HP level checked for. So you can make uh, adjustment to your nutrition or something like that, like breastfeeding and things like you already mentioned. Before that, then I would just like to add to, to, I think women and children is most important and, and not forget adolescents, girls. It's super important when uh, they have start to have the first menstruation bleedings and stuff like that. And when they are developing to, to have really good control of uh, anemia levels. And in that age also, I got two daughters in that age, then food can be a very delicate matter to discuss <laughs> for many different reasons. But if you start to become anemic and fatigue at that age due to menstruation bleedings or food intake and so on, 
It will definitely have an impact on school, your social networking, and just being able to cope with friends and life, and can have a dramatic impact. There are actually publications out now that points to depression and anxiety is related to anemia. So there are periods in life, not only for infants, but also later on, where anemia is maybe more important to have under control as compared to others. Also for people who practice and train a lot. You're right. It's a very important reminder. We get so fixated on iron for infancy, but it's like this extends into life. And I think any adult who's experienced iron deficiency anemia, they always say like, you didn't realize how fatigued and exhausted you were until you started treating it. And they're like, oh my gosh. I remember one pregnancy, I had a lot of bleeding with my twins and they gave you IV iron in the hospital. I mean, I felt like superwoman. I was like, this is what's been missing in my whole life. I'm apparently extremely fatigued, but but it isn't something that just turns off at the age of one. And I think a lot of times as parents, once we get over the hump and our babies learn how to eat and we're more confident, we sometimes let our guard down with regards to the quality of the foods that they're eating. And if it's a highly refined processed diet, what we call the standard American diet, and there are not iron rich foods in it and there are minimal intakes of fruits and vegetables. So you're not getting the vitamin C to help with the iron absorption. You see how easily it can be to kind of fall into a dietary pattern, the typical kids diet where they're increasing the risk for iron deficiency. So that's a good reminder that this is a, a lifespan wide condition. It's smart to focus on and learn about in infancy, but keep it up throughout childhood and adolescence. And even as adults, a lot of very fatigued moms are listening to this who may be iron deficient as well. And do not forget the grandmothers and grandparents because elderly also get anemia and they are much more prone to infectious diseases. And the outcome of infectious diseases can be much severe for elderly people, of course. And if they get not the proper diet at elderly care centers or whatever, and loss of appetites and stuff like that, it's more likely that they become anemic and then more prone to get infections and those are more severe. So it is really something that comes through life. <laughs> hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. In the United States, you know, you talked a little bit about healthcare and access and affordability. And I do a lot of work with the WIC program, our special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children. And so for those of you listening who may not be familiar with it, it's a U.S. government nutrition assistance program. And so a lot of times I'm working on the food side, teaching them how to make the food safe. But we also know that for many of these families, it's really their only healthcare. This is the catchment net for healthcare, for screening and one of the best things that WIC does is they provide benefits based on what they call uh, nutrition risk. And one of the way they assess nutrition risk is through hemoglobin checks. What do you know about the role of hemoglobin checking or screening in the WIC program? I think I've seen in many WIC offices that I've been in, I've seen hemocues there. 
So I was just curious, having you know the global background that you do, any thoughts about our WIC program, good, bad, or otherwise, with regards to the work that they're doing? No, I think the WIC program is just, is just an excellent case of you know how healthcare can be brought to people that really need it and might not have the possibility to, to get access to it as easily as many others. We're just glad that we have the possibility to be a part of that and make it accessible, because I think access to like in this case, essential diagnostics done by the WIC program is absolutely fantastic. And it's, it's just great to see that. And I'm glad that- Because all of our WIC moms, our WIC moms always know like, oh, I know what my baby's hemoglobin is. And then moms that are not in WIC are sometimes like, what are you talking about? My doctor's never even screened for that. So I think it's an area that the WIC program, and there's a lot of work to be done, certainly on the food and the nutrition side. But I think it's wonderful that we're, addressing and assessing nutrition risk. Like that's what we're supposed to do. You can't make an intervention if you don't understand the risk factors or, you know, what the plan of care is and knowing whether or not there's a risk for iron deficiency really kind of helps set the course for, like you said, many important things. This isn't just a temporary thing. This is cognitive development of your children. I agree. um, It has an impact, definitely. People listening, Stefan, who want to learn more about hemoglobin screaming, about HemiQ, where's a good place to go to start doing a little bit of research before they maybe go to their doctor and be like, hey, why aren't you testing my baby's hemoglobin? With this audience, you know, I would suggest, of course, you can go to one of the company's websites that provides these HB tests. That There you can read a little bit about it. But otherwise, I think the WHO is just a fantastic homepage to read about anemia anemia impacts in both developed and developing countries, prevalence and all sorts of aspects of of anemia. If you think more about uh, women and children, I would say that the Thousand Days, uh, there is an organization called the Thousand Days, used to also have very, very interesting and very good reading about anemia uh, nutrition, malnutrition, iron deficiency, breastfeeding, and everything related to infants and the thousand days concepts, basically. Well, I will link all of those resources for our audience in the show notes for this episode. And thank you so much for a very interesting conversation. I know this is a little bit of a different audience than you're used to. I think I was telling you, I've tried for like a year to get this interview. So I really appreciate getting on the calendar, having the chat, because I think it just helps raise awareness and we want our parents to be you know, good stewards of health, but advocates for their children's health as well. And, and knowing the right questions to ask sometimes is, is the first step in helping improve your child's overall health with regards to their health care. Thank you very much for having me here. Thanks. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Stefan Oglensberg from HemaQ. I will put all of the resources related to what we talked about for iron testing and hemoglobin checks and anemia screening for infants all in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 374. And a special thank you to our partners at Airwave Media. If you guys like podcasts that feature food and science and using your brain, check out some of the other podcasts from Airwave Media. We're online at blwpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Bye now. Like a lot of moms out there, I will totally admit I am quite type A. I am a total task master. And one of my weekly work tasks is to review the feedback forms that our new students in my program, which is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro, that they leave for us. So basically, this form asks a lot of questions about you and your baby and your baby's feeding and medical history, any concerns that you might have or fears about starting solid foods. And all of this data helps me when I'm answering 
parent questions inside of our weekly live office hours so I can then tailor my response to your particular baby and situation, right? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to what your baby's eating, right? Because maybe your baby has an egg allergy or another mom in the program. She might really be struggling with how to make meat safe because she doesn't like to cook. So this week on the forum, there's a new mom named Janine, and she wrote, and this is her quote, I researched a lot on the internet, and I have a lot of books. I saw a lot of other baby-led weaning programs, but in the end, this is the one that I realized is what I'm really looking for as a new mom. I love that Katie's program has a community and that there are videos for everything you need to know and how to make the foods. And what I love the most is that there's already a meal plan ready. And this just like stopped my heart because this is exactly why I created the Baby Lead Weaning with Katie Ferraro program. I wanted to literally put everything that you need to know about starting solid food safely in one place with a super easy to follow 20 full weeks meal plan. Okay, there's 20 weeks because it's five foods a week. I want your baby to get to those 100 new foods before they turn one because I also know you have a lot going on as a new mom and hunting and pecking all over the internet to try to figure out what am I going to feed this baby? That is not the solution. So if you want to check out the Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro program, I would be honored to work with you and your baby. You can head to babyledweaning.co to get started and hopefully I'll be reading your feedback soon too.